0: Hello Liturgy Guy listeners, this is your host Jesse Weiland We have another great episode for you It's like Christmas morning for me because I get to tell you that We are doing a part two to our episode on beauty Yeah, that's right, we have a whole other episode Continuing our conversation from last week And needless to say, this is my favorite topic This has been my favorite podcast episode yet So without further ado, episode 26 of The Liturgy Guys Enjoy
1: to talk to you today about the Mass.
0: The liturgy is what
1: enculturates the Gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy?
2: And and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh?
0: We're
1: called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that
0: beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present the Liturgy Guys. All right, Chris, you got to yes. get all your coughs out. You I'm coughs? ready. You have all any coughs left? Probably later. Okay. So we had so much to talk about last time that we decided mm-hmm. to continue the conversation on beauty. We're going to call this beauty part two because the uh, first one had an integritas problem.
2: It was well, not. What was the integritas? It was not. Co- it's not
0: complete. Oh, okay. So it's not complete. So we need to keep going. What were the things that uh, you guys were talking about? Uh, Perceived beauty was one of the things that you wanted to talk about going forward.
2: Just a quick review. The last time we talked about, in the Thomistic tradition, beauty, we call a thing beautiful when it exhibits its perfection of being. That is, it reveals its ontological reality in a full way that's proportional to all the ways it needs to be proportional and it has the power to reveal itself. This is all what beautiful things have and do. So the main point there is that
1: beauty is an aspect of the being itself not necessarily or not principally primarily
2: firstly in the eye of the the recipient. Right. In this what they call the realist tradition beauty is in the object which is a funny thing. And there's different kinds of not beauty. Not the not the beholder. No, it's in the object. The beholder okay. be- beholds the object but the beauty properly speaking is in the object. This is the I don't want to be beholden to that. But you shouldn't. But this oh, is okay. the classical view, you know, the the more modern subjective view would be the objects out there, you have a perception of that object. So you've formed the idea of the thing in your head. And that's where blueness, say, resides in a blue car, not in the car itself, but in your perception of the blue car. We're not really talking about that right now. I mean, we're talking about the classical uh, realist notion of beauty. I had a professor in grad school named Bill Westfall, and he was very much a fan of the idea that beauty is an objective reality in this Aristotelian model. And he said, if a beautiful object is beautiful and you do not perceive it, then you and not it are deficient. Mm. And all the students would go, wow. oh, you're calling us deficient. Well, kind of, you know, if a thing is beautiful and you can't tell, that's your problem. It's not a problem with the thing mm. itself. And so this funny relationship between the perceiver and the object is always where the difficulty comes in. What if I like it and you don't like it? What if we disagree On what a thing, yeah. So, how do you determine who's right? Well, you can't argue about personal preference. You know what's that saying about? There's no disputing taste. Good taste. There's something in Latin, non disputandum. Um, And that's true. You can't dispute what you prefer. However, you can bring it into the realm of the intellect, and then you can actually have discourse about whether or not something is revealing its ontological reality, or what the ontological reality of a thing is. And that's what we're all trying to figure out. What is the liturgy? Most people don't say, I'm doing this wrong on purpose. Most people have an operative ontology about a thing and they operate out of it. And so the challenge is, how do we get to the essential question? And then you have agreement.
1: Yeah, but we say, I mean, the liturgy should be beautiful. I don't know if anybody disputes that, right? I mean, the content of the liturgy is uh, uh, being in its fullness in the person of Jesus Christ. I could Christ. probably find you someone who disagrees with that. Yeah, but, probably. Uh, <laughs> um, but Jesus Himself, who is the, the ground of all being and the source of all being, uh, uh, I mean, is Himself the fullness of truth, the fullness of goodness, and the fullness of beauty. And if it is Jesus who is the fullness of beauty, who is the subject of the liturgy, then it then it ought to be beautiful. Uh, so, this this is a quest for anyone interested in the liturgy: is uh, how is it? How do we determine whether the Liturgy is beautiful. How do we make a liturgy beautiful uh, in itself so that we can come to encounter
2: being and beauty in it? And that's why liturgical studies matter. This is why we have a program in liturgical studies at the Liturgical Institute. If you know what a thing is, then you know what to do. And that's very important. And so, you know, there's this question or this idea that goes around beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And um, that's kind of a mistranslation of a, a phrase from Thomas. Um, the Latin of which is pulcra que visa placent. You both got that, right? Yeah, you were, you were one more time. Say that. Yeah, one more time. <laughs> Just Pul- in case the listeners... Pulcra, uh, yeah. pulcra is the word for beautiful, or beautiful. Dicuntur is, are called uh, things which when seen, please. That's the literal translation of word mm-hmm. for word. Beautiful are called things which when seen, please. Mm-hmm. So the, the word visa is in there for when seen. The problem with visa... And you're my favorite Latinist here, Chris. So well, it's because uh, it's, it's not everywhere you want to be. Well, true enough, but it's, it's, uh, it can be, that is the two different, it's one verb form that can mean two different things. or are two different verbs. One is videre and one is visere. And videre means to see, like with the eye, you know, but videre means to look at, stare into, contemplate. So... It's not just when it pleases you to look at it you're like, wow, I like that. It's when you look at its depths in its contemplative depths, what are you seeing? It's ontological reality. So when you're pleased, when you have delight in ontological reality, we call those things beautiful. So it's the same operative definition uh, we've been working about. So in a certain sense, beauty is in the eye of the beholder when the
1: eye beholds the beautiful thing and takes some pleasure out of it. But it doesn't mean that
2: somehow the eye of the beholder is eyeball. that which determines beauty. Right. Beauty is determined by the kind of prototype in the mind of God of what the fullness of ontology is. And then we look at a thing and it either sacramentalizes that fully or as fully as it can or less fully. And the beauty is in degree to the, the way and the, the amount of that sacramentalization. So it's perfection of being is another way to say it. God is being itself. So he's fullness of being. You could say he's the most beautiful thing because he's got the fullness of of ontological reality of himself. And then everything that participates less in that. Are we keeping you awake here? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Have some coffee. Yeah, I'm about to. <laughs> uh,
0: everything that participates to some lesser degree is less. Okay, you yawn one dime and everybody thinks that you're tired. But let's bring it down a little bit. So
1: just okay. give us, Dennis, an example of this. Um, apply this to like a beautiful vestment or a beautiful door or a beautiful
2: sanctus. Well, it gets a little tricky, right? Because they're ontological categories. And so everything has a beauty proper to itself. So there's a kind of beauty that belongs to a vestment for a bishop uh, on a solemnity. And then there's a kind of beauty that belongs to a vestment on a bishop on a ferial day. And then there's a kind of beauty that belongs to a vestment on a parish priest and on a solemnity. And there's a kind of beauty that belongs to a vestment on a Franciscan with an extreme vow of simplicity uh poverty. Um, and so they all have beauty proper to themselves, even though they're not exactly the same thing. So that's why you have to always get back to the ontological category. But let's, let's start at the high level, right? So you want to say, what's the fullness of chasuble? Well, it has to have enough chasubleness, enough fabric to be the full chasuble. This is the complaint that was often made against the fiddleback chasubles that you hear about before the council, is that they actually, for reasons of convenience, basically just cut part of it off so that the priest couldn't, Raise their arms, and so there was less chasuble there, and you didn't have the fullness of chasuble. In that's them. the one that we see in the extraordinary form. You often, you do yeah, often, not see necessarily them, yeah. though, but you're right, often. often. Right. Okay. And they're not forbidden by any particular law, except the the argument at the mid twentieth century was that's a chasuble kind of minimized to let the priest move his arms around, as opposed to the full notion of being covered in the garment of salvation that was more like a wow a full cloth. And then you might say, okay, well, it's thin and uh, the cloth is all not that um, precious. Say it's just polyester. Well, you might say, well, what's the dignity of the priest putting on the garment of salvation the way Christ put on the garment of salvation and taking our matter onto himself and then bringing it back to the Father and the resurrected body? So you might yeah. say, well, is it, is it woven with gold thread that gives it a radiance?
1: Cardinal Ratzinger will speak about this in uh, the Spirit of the Liturgy when he talks about vestments that uh, in some ways it echoes you know, the prodigal son coming home and the father puts on him the finest robe. This is what he says um, at least signifies our baptismal garment. You know, this, this, he says that in, in, in the original Greek, it's like the first robe. It's the restoring of the, the prodigal, the fallen away son, back to his original dignity. This is what it means for all the baptized, but for the priest as well. I mean, that's kind of a type uh, of, or or an anticipation of what this chasuble should be. It should be signifying kind of the fullness of the Father's uh,
2: love and restoration. If I come along and say, well, I grew up in the 40s and priests were mean and nuns hit me with sticks and fancy vestments, that's the bad triumphalism of the Preconciliar Church, and therefore I don't like glorious chasubles. Well, that is a real subjective response, but the problem is not with the (laughs) Chasuble. The problem is with me, because I have an emotional response to something that has an objective reality. is not the same. is not a reason to get rid of the objective reality. Now, of course, there's pastoral considerations that everybody has to take, Uh, but when you there's a certain relentless, heartless objectivity to this approach to beauty, which is there is a reality. You express the reality. You encounter it and if you don't like it it's your problem i mean there's a it's a heartlessness in a way and then every pastoral situation you have to bring people to where they need to be
1: yeah no well, that's a, that's a great point i mean because it's not you know is it this is the reality and it doesn't matter what you think i mean the pastor at least for his point has a, a it seems to me a double duty he has to on the one hand express this uh, objective uh, reality but on the other hand he has to help his, himself and his people to learn how to move from uh, milk to solid food has to help them to come to be able to encounter it and appreciate it so he does have an eye on both of these
2: things yeah, yeah and so the question of the perceiver we don't want to say that people don't matter and people right. do matter because a thing in to be beautiful a thing has to be perceived because the perceiver is part of the process of, of beauty being expressed.
1: right? We can say that the is about the glory of God, which it is, but the glory of God is men and women fully alive, and so the, the way you know that the liturgy operates is to get the people who perceive it to become
0: saints so that God can be glorified, so they do matter. So can we then maybe get to the other vestments, like you said, maybe a simple Franciscan, or did you want to go to it? An-
2: well, yeah, it's, it's what's proper to the thing, so a Franciscan chasuble is going to have an ideal based on its ontological category, which is a simple Franciscan chasuble. So you bring it to the level of glory that an extreme poverty uh, asks. Although there are people who say, you know, you could live in poverty and worship in splendor. You know, this is my, and you my might even get a gift, you know, for
0: your ordination or something from somebody, and that might be a really nice chasuble. <laughs> My own my own bishop is
1: uh, William Patrick Callahan. He's a conventional Fr- he's a Franciscan, and he said the exact same thing to me. He says, "If you know you can sleep on the floor, okay, but when it comes to worshiping the God, uh, worshiping God, you give him you give him the absolute best because the liturgy is about giving glory to God. In your own private life, you can be austere, and I, I hope I'm uh, paraphrasing him accurately. But
2: when it comes to God, you give him the best. When it comes to you, you can be as austere as you like." Right. So the question of what I like is a very different answer from what beautiful is. So if it's eye, and the eye of the beholder, well, you have to check your eye. Like, does your eye know what good is? In your, fact, eye has, me- your eye has a piece of lumber in it, I think. Well, then you need to get that out, <laughs> get that out of there. Uh, it's part of the, uh, of the process. And so, you know, part of the question is, well, how do you respond to something beautiful? You know, if the Eucharist is presented to you and you're indifferent... Well, that doesn't change the Eucharist. It means you don't love it very much, you know. Or if the Eucharist is um, presented to you and you hate it, it doesn't change the Eucharist as much as you need to know uh, something more about it. And um, that's the that's the goal and um, beauty is that it's supposed to move our will toward the good, to love that which is presented. And if you think about all of this, and you know we have new atheism on every side, and all these misunderstandings about what the faith is, and and people leaving the the church in droves, well. What have we given to people a lot of the time for the last 50 years? Kind of dull, beige, tacky, not so radiant, not so complete, not so full visions of liturgy. And so we kind of wonder why people don't love it very much.
0: That, that's my next question, actually. We, you mentioned about you know, beauty being something in its perfect form, its ontological reality. And so what about if you are given a situation in which you cannot be complete or... Um, you know, like let's say you have a perfectly well-meaning and and objectively, um, you know, a a priest with an objective mindset of beauty and, uh, and liturgy, but they're just in a church that doesn't look that way, and so they're limited. So how can you have beauty in a situation where you're limited and you
2: can't be fully perfect? Well, nobody can be fully perfect, but you can do the best you can in the situations that you have. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I didn't mean that. (laughs) When uh, people are on the battlefield in World War II and they're saying mass on the back of a truck, you know, that is beautiful to the degree that they're able to do it. There's a concept of decorum, which means uh, fittingness. And fittingness will be different if you're in a time of peace in a cathedral than if you're on the back of a truck in a battlefield in World War II. It'll be proper in each case but one will have a fullness that the other one won't have. And so ontological categories matter, but they're also um, the perfection of being is objectively less on the back of a truck than it is in a cathedral. So you can say a rock has objectively less perfection of being than a plant because it can't move, it can't reproduce. Uh, an animal has more than a plant and human beings because they have intellect and will and locomotion, reproduction and all the values. And then cats and then dogs. No, well, yeah, cats are lower than dogs. Right, yeah. yeah. Cats definitely lower than dogs. Absolutely. So so you can have a perfection in uh, being not only within your category, but then from category to category as well. And you think about what liturgy does. It brings together music, art, craft, ironwork, glasswork, goldsmithing, gems, silk, embroidery, papermaking, bookbinding, painting, mosaic, um, rhetoric, poetry, text, and brings all the heritage of the past to our own time and then the heavenly future backward into our own time. That is the highest potential for a perfection of being of really any human activity that, that we can have. But it seems, though, there's these two elements.
1: On the one hand, you the liturgy itself expresses this uh, ontological truth of the saving work of Christ. Right? And this is what the church and the ministers and the pastor uh, have as their obligation. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, is, uh, has, has come up, well, just because they do their job and present something that is objectively beautiful, how is it that, you know, 100 people can look at it and not all see it as beautiful as it is i mean what you know what would you say to someone dennis who you get out of this uh, objectively beautiful liturgy and you say that was uh that was very very beautiful and the other person says i didn't think that was beautiful at all right so you talked about maybe some uh lack of uh formation or perhaps some deficiency in the eye of that particular uh beholder well how would you how do you train someone to in beauty
0: Oh, there's a place that you can get a degree in liturgy. It's <laughs> called the Liturgical Institute. Most beautiful you can, your, you can get your master's or your doctorate. Whatever you want to do, we got it for you. Um, You'll but, be much better looking at the end of the uh, degree. Yeah, oh, absolutely. We're very beautiful. Yeah, and no, not deficient in liturgy. But Dennis, you probably have a different answer.
2: Well, there is a saying. There is a guy named um, G.B. Phelan, P-H-E-L-A-N, who wrote a book on beauty or an essay on beauty and he said emotional experiences and association can explain why some of us call things beautiful or don't call things beautiful but they don't constitute beauty itself beauty is it has an objective uh, reality and it's, it's really less concerned with a participant's reaction than with the revelation of the inner nature of a thing itself so I, if we both look at a raccoon and i say wow that looks like a raccoon and you say no it looks like a pig you don't know what raccoons are Um, However, if there's two raccoons, or or the other guy doesn't know what a pig is, right? Either way. But if we both look at two different raccoons and say, well, I like the white spot on this raccoon's neck, well, I like the black spot on his tail, there's a certain personal preference, but neither of them does damage to the nature of the raccoon itself. It's just at least it's a raccoon. But if it's not a raccoon, that's damage, right? And there's a legitimate variety and there's a legitimate place for personal preference. So, do I like Gothic churches better or Romanesque churches? They're both churches. They're both expressing one facet of the reality more or less than the other. It's like, do you like the Eastern liturgy tradition better or Western liturgy tradition? They're both valid. One emphasizes one nature or one part of the liturgy more than the other. What do you need at that moment? Might You might find more pleasing, but they're both legitimate. But if you say, well, I don't want any of this and I'm going to go you know, worship the sun god or something, then you're off the track and you can't say that that's objectively as beautiful than, than proper worship.
0: And I think probably the, the the bigger picture here is that people don't know they're looking, <laughs> they're calling something a pig when it's a raccoon, and they just don't know it, and they they honestly, sincerely don't know because they don't have the information or access to that information, or or never catechized or taught that.
1: Can we switch us from uh, pigs and raccoons yeah. to? I mean, let's say, Dennis. What does uh, um I mean, what does a beautiful altar look like? What does a beautiful church door look like? What does a beautiful baptismal font look like? What are some of the objective things in those sacramental furnishings that uh, I should begin to recognize and have formed in my own subjective uh, perception?
2: Well, evaluating any of those things, say, start with the altar. The first thing that you have to ask, is that, it, say, is that a beautiful altar? The first question that should come up is, what's an altar? and we know it alters an image of Christ, and we know Christ is resurrected, so it has to be radiant, perfected, glorified. We, I'm sorry to interrupt you yeah, already, but so, I mean,
1: imagine, I'm, there, surely some people listening out there either are presently or have in the past or will be in the future sitting, for example, on uh, their parishes, uh, building a renovation committee, they're about to build a church or fix something like, like that. Imagine th- this is the type of uh, approach that you
2: you may wish to have. All right, go ahead. So what is radiant, perfected, and glorified? look like well in our tradition typically it's fine materials so precious or semi-precious uh, stone things that can be polished they can be shiny you know one of the things about marble that separates it out from other stone is that the first uh, sort of few millimeters of the stone are actually penetrable to light and so what happens is light penetrates the surface of the stone and it actually begins to bounce back after a certain number of millimeters and it it actually looks like it's sort of glowing because the light is bouncing through it and then back out again and so if something's radiant with the light of Christ, what is the best way to sacramentalize that reality? You know, one way is stained glass. It's the only medium through which light passes. Every other thing, light bounces off the surface like a mosaic or a painting, but light actually goes through stained glass as if it's made of gems. And gem-like radiance is the biblical symbol for heavenliness. So if you're going to make an altar that's a heavenly table, that's a heavenly Christ that's radiant with the light of Christ, you start thinking, hmm, how do we do that? Well, it's Colorful, gem like, reflective, polished, might even have gold mosaic, uh, gold leaf, uh, evidence of high level of craft. These are all the things that indicate something is important. And because an altar is important at its ontological level, the more important it looks, the more important it will, the more beautiful it will be. But if you start covering it up with every last possible way to gild the lily, then you can't see the lily anymore. And so if you have too much stuff on an altar and you, you can't see the alterness anymore, then it's not beautiful. So this is where this notions of noble simplicity came from in Vatican II. The phrase is actually that um, art and architecture should have noble beauty rather than meram sumptuosu tatem, which is mere sumptuous display. So it's-
0: Yeah, we learned that on our... Sacrosanctum quiz
2: that I failed. I'll take
0: it again. I think I'll pass. That's still stinging? It very much stings. Very much.
2: But mere spending? Look how rich we are. We're going to throw everything in the kitchen sink at this altar. We don't care if you can see the altar anymore because we have so many ornaments on it. That's obscuring the ontological reality of the altar. So there's always this balance between too much and not enough. If it's deficient and it doesn't reveal the importance, then it's not beautiful. If there's so much other stuff that it hides the reality of the altar, then it's not beautiful uh, as well.
1: I don't know if I heard this from you, Dennis. That doesn't Aristotle have this notion about beauty as something that uh, nothing can be added,
2: nor taken away, or except changed, but which, for the worse. But for the worse, right? Mm-hmm. Which means if you add something and it's less perfect, that's you've worsened it. If you take something away that it needs, then it's less perfect. And if it's changed, that is moved around. So that's integritas, right? Wholeness. If it has too many parts, it's not the number right number of parts. If it doesn't have enough parts, it's deficient. If they're not in the right place, that's a consonancia problem. And then if it has those problems, then it won't reveal what it is, and that's a claritas problem. So it's it's an artistic decision. You know, Somebody knows what's the perfect altar, and they have an image of it, and they draw it. And this is where a really good artist or architect can reach into the the intuitive or revelatory notion of a thing and then draw it and then build it, and that's... A very difficult thing okay. to do well. You're
1: at least head of the game now, right? So if if you're trying to judge the beauty of, say, an altar, is the first thing you recognize is that it's not up to you to determine if it's beautiful or not. There's already... Uh, an ontological substratum that will t- that that radiates its own beauty. So the beauty originates with the altar. That's the first point. I think what you're saying. Right. When alterness
2: is revealed, it's beautiful. Okay. And that's the
1: that's the second thing. Then is it's again not me or the committee who's going to decide if it's going to be beautiful or not. It begins with the alterness of the altar, or the doorness of the uh, church door, or the amboness of the ambo. Well, what is each of these things uh, in its uh, in its essence? Uh, That is the basis for its uh, radiating, its
2: uh, clarifying what, what it is meant to be. Well, right. And that means we have to know what it is. And when you look at a lot of the documents and journal articles from, say, the 70s or 80s, they're often deficient at the level of ontology because they'll say things like, well, the altar is the dining room table of God and the church is the domestic room where we feel comfortable as a family. Well, it is in a way, except they, they've they just thrown eschatology out the window and it's, they say, oh, make it look like your dining room at home. Well, that's not really the ontological nature of an altar, to look like a secular dining room table in your family uh, dining room. So it's an ontological theological problem, and then it's expressed as a problem in the actual object itself. Isn't there
1: even a famous line from, uh, is it environment and art and Catholic worship that a church doesn't need to look...
2: Sorry, though. that's what we were never supposed to mention on the card.
1: <laughs> the church doesn't need to look like a
2: church. It's just a skin for liturgical action. The line is, it's a skin for liturgical action, which need not look like anything else past or present. And what? Skin, yeah, this American bishops of the United States, uh, Bishops Committee on oh, okay. the Liturgy, wrote this. Uh, without I, a vote, I won't comment any further. Without a vote of the, of the full body of bishops. But the notion of the church as just this tent over our heads that keeps the weather out, because the logic operating at that time was that the true symbol of worship were the people and everything else was just sort of the minimum necessity you needed to, to get that worship, uh, get the right done. And if you listen to this podcast, you know that's not correct. Well, that's not complete, right? That's an integritas problem because the church building is more than just a weather. It's not just a big umbrella. It's a sacramental thing in itself.
1: Yeah, well, that's true. Every podcast is basically about the sacramental understanding of, uh, of, of the church and things liturgical. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, that, that line, deny that, that throws sacramentality uh, out the window. It's a rejection of it right there. Um, but, when, I mean, one of, the, one of the principal models, even of the church, before you even get to the liturgy, is that she's a sacrament of Christ. And if it doesn't matter, you know, what or how sacraments appear, how signs and symbols images of phenomena express themselves well then that, that that seems a sentiment contrary to the whole identity of the liturgy and uh, the and ecclesiology and the rest oh, and, and even christology I mean, he's the image of the invisible god <laughs> whoever has seen me has seen the father well it doesn't matter what you look like well in fact, it does, because to see me, what I look like, how I appear, what my image is, uh, uh, my truth, the, the, the radiance of my truth, um, says Christ. I mean, that is exactly the point of convergence between heaven and earth. And also
0: and, you just limit the, the ability to connect and encounter God when you don't look at those things and you ignore them and you, you, know, you don't use the signs and symbols. And...
2: and beauty is the reality of the thing. Beauty is not a hat on top of a thing. Probably speaking, beauty is when the reality of the thing is given to you for your apprehension. So beauty is the reality of the thing presented to you. Now, sometimes beauty requires certain things to be added or taken away to make that reality clear. But just piling stuff on top of the stuff is not beauty. Letting the thing be what it is at the level of its very nature. That's what we call a thing beautiful. And a perceiver may not know what a beautiful thing is or what the thing is so they don't know how to determine if it's beautiful or not and this is not to be snobby about you know smart people and less smart people that's not what we're talking about we're talking about sacramental revelation which has its own power how does God communicate himself to us through material things how can we help him communicate better make those material things reveal what they are then we call them beautiful because that's what they are. Christ, you know, is the perfect image of the father. And in that sense is the perfect model of the sacrament, perfect uh, beauty. He is 100% proportional to the father, except that he's begotten, but the father gave his entire self. And so they have a right relationship with each other. That's consonancia. He has the entire integrity or wholeness of the father, and he has the power to reveal the father. So he's got integrity, consonancia, and claritas. And ideally every liturgical thing we make should do that as well. Well, we had an integrity
0: test problem with this podcast because we didn't feel complete about talking about beauty. But now, now I do. Yeah now now we're we're a lot closer, and there were some things that we wanted to to keep after. But um, hopefully that it definitely has helped me because those those questions about abstract beauty. I mean, those can really trip me up personally. And having this information, I think, is going to help me uh, next time I at least engage in conversation or even think about. What beauty is in, uh, in my experience in liturgy and, and you know the Catholic life. So, uh, I think let's uh, check out a, an email from a listener. All right, we'll answer it beautifully, with integritas,
2: and consonancia, and claritas. <laughs> oh, hopefully, claritas.
0: Cut. Hey, Liturgy Guy listeners, this is your host, Jesse Weiler, and before we get into this week's email question, I wanted to quickly remind you about our Young Adult Liturgy Conference coming up in April 2017. If you're a young adult and you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, both Dennis and Chris will be speaking at this Young Adult Liturgy Conference in Chicago. So to learn more about that, go to www.betransfigured.com.
1: So why go to the Liturgical Institute? Well, if you want to serve the church and do liturgical studies from the heart of the church, not just ritual anthropology, but really discovering the mystery of prayer and at the same time the depth of the tradition, you won't find any place quite like this. This place is faithful to the magisterium, but it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, it also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I want to warmly recommend the Liturgical Institute for your consideration. Pray about going and studying and sharing the richness of our living tradition.
2: Mail call! Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone?
0: This week's question comes from Anonymous. John
2: McEnroe. Why don't any of our people ever put their names on their questions? They're all I shy. Know.
0: Well, some people don't want their pastors to know they're asking these questions. I don't know. But this week's question comes from Anonymous, and Anonymous says, I was at Mass this Sunday, and I noticed that confession was available in the beginning of Mass. Is this allowed? Well, so they- oh, go ahead. So most places
1: have confession before mass, but it, this it was it during, kept going during mass. Yes, yeah. this was during mass. Yeah, I see that this actually happens with some frequency. I know when I go to the Shrine of um, Lady of Guadalupe, um, they, they hear a lot of confessions, and mm-hmm. inevitably the line's still there when mass starts and confessions keep going on. Now the shrine is a place where. I mean, it's uh, every parish is like this too, but the shrine in particular way has these uh, cares for these spiritual needs, one of which is confession. So I'm interested to hear what the answer is, uh, Dennis.
2: Oh, I thought you were going to give the oh, no, answer. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, okay, no, Dennis. No, no. Well, let's set the uh, ideal norm, right? So the ideal norm is you've been to confession and you're ready to go to Mass and therefore you're ready to go from the first word of the Mass to the last word of the Mass and receive communion. That's the ideal situation. Now, sometimes things like that don't happen. Uh, You know, the the kind of liturgy thought of the 20th century was you shouldn't be doing one thing while another thing is going on. So waiting in line for confession, thinking about your sins, maybe nervous, trying to memorize them, or, you know, think about the act of contrition is not really good participation in mass. So kind of being distracted through most of mass and then finishing with confession and then going to communion. Well, it's maybe better than not, but it's not really the ideal situation. Nonetheless, Pope John Paul II thought that this renewal and rediscovery of confession was so important that in 2002, he issued a motu proprio, which is his kind of on his own authority insertion into law, that you can have mass during confession. And in fact, he said that um, the ex- quote is that it is recommended that in places of worship, confessions be visibly present and before, especially before masses and even during mass, if there are other priests available in order to meet the needs of the faithful. So that's the real thing. Is there, are they meeting the needs of the faithful, uh, and so that's the question. But it's not the ideal situation, uh, I would say. Nonetheless, in 2011, there was another document that came out, um, and it was called. Um, actually, I don't remember what it's called, but <laughs> it was from. It's probably not important <laughs> from the Roman, from the Roman <laughs> um, congregations, saying that when there are priests available, can celebrating mass. They could even be recommended to go hear confessions instead of celebrating Mass if the priests are available. So you have this kind of tension, which is that you should be celebrating Mass when Mass is being celebrated and not doing something else. But on the other hand, if there's a pastoral need, it's permissible to have Masses uh, and Confession going on at the same time.
0: And there's some, there's like you said, there's some competing things. Obviously, the Church wants you to go to Confession. It's a sacrament that's available. Um, the Church wants you to go to Confession. But at the same time, the church wants you to be fully active and participating in the liturgy, and uh, I, I think we've touched on this before. Um, even doing devotions during mass can be distracting or taking you away from the liturgy there, and um, it can be said that you don't need to have confessed to actually go to mass. Um, you know, obviously, you can't be in a uh, you have to be in a state of grace to receive communion, but it's not required to go to confession before you go to Mass. And so you have all these things kind of combining
2: today um, in
0: this question, but
2: I think at least those documents help add some clarity. And the the document that I was just talking about was called The Priest, Minister of Divine Mercy, and it was put out by the Congregation for the Clergy in 2011. Okay,
0: so Anonymous, hopefully that gives you some clarity for your question. And if uh, any of our other listeners want to submit a question to the Liturgy Guys, you can email us
2: Now that's a podcast.